Matthew 14, 1 through 12. If you have a Bible or you have it on your phone or tablet, you can turn there. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people. Because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. It's an interesting passage to say the least. There's something about um, speaking truth to power that can cause problems. There's something about giving too much power to the wrong people that can also cause problems. I was thinking about this last night, Levi's home. I'm very happy right now. <laughs> Levi's a part of the sound setup team at Grand Canyon University. And um, Grand Canyon's an interesting college because you don't have to be a Christian to go there. Um, but it has a Christian basis. But because you don't have to be a Christian to go there, sometimes you get some interesting groups. And he was talking to me about the Mother God cult, a very small group, and they requested a sound system. And so he took over a sound system. And he also, um, he also said, as I refuse to give them power. And uh, I was a little bit confused. And he's like, no, literally, I took a broken power cord. <laughs> Got it all set up, and they didn't have power. <laughs> I said, what did your boss say? Oh, he laughed really hard. <laughs> I'd like to say, you're your mother's son. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's, there's this thing about giving too much power to power. It's hard to not be confused at times because Herod's name is all over in the Bible, but they're not always the same person. Herod the Great ruled from um, 37 BC to, to uh, or 37 to 4 BC. He's the guy in the Christmas story who tried to trick the wise men, and when it didn't work, he ordered the killing of all of the babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger. For those that doubt that that this is true, Herod was ruthless. He killed three of his own sons. When the brother of his favorite wife, Miriam, roused his suspicions, he invited the high priest. This was also the high priest. He invited him to a swimming pool party. And in the equivalent of what was a polo game, he had his men drown her brother. Then he ordered the killing of her grandfather. And then, suspecting Miriam herself, he had her killed. When he realized his own death was intimate, 
He ordered leaders from around Israel to be gathered together in one place. And as soon as he died, they were all to be executed. So to secure a proper state of mourning in Israel. They didn't follow through on his request. But you can understand this man was brutal. Then there's Herod Archelaus. He was one of Herod the Great's three sons mentioned in the Bible. He received half of his father's territory. He received Judea and Samaria. He wasn't a cuddly guy either. Um, He has all of his own stories. He was replaced by Rome less than 10 years into his reign, which is why Pontius Pilate was in charge at Jesus' crucifixion rather than Herod. And I got entirely too wrapped up in all of this. I spent way too much time time studying the history behind all of this instead of working on an actual sermon. It is, it is quite the drama. It's like watching a soap opera on TV. And last night I'm thinking, oh no, I still got a sermon to put together after reading all of this history. I mean, literally they have all of this archaeology um, to, to really back up what scripture is saying. And that these are real historical figures and, and you can go to all of the archaeological evidence. And like there were people at one time that said Quirinius wasn't even a real person. Well, now they actually have archaeological evidence to back up scripture. But there's these, these sons that replaced Herod the Great. One of them was Herod Archelaus. Um, and, uh, and, and then there's Herod Philip the Tetrarch. There's a couple of Tetrarchs. And uh, he received one quarter of his father's territory. There's Herod Agrippa. One of the grandsons, he shows up in the book of Acts. Now, the Herod that we just read about is Herod Antipas. He was also one of the sons of Herod the Great, and he received one quarter of his father's kingdom. He ruled over Galilee in an area known as Perea, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River Valley. The other Herod in this passage is not called Herod, but his name is Herod Philip. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Herod Antipas, the Herod that's named in this passage, seduced his brother Philip's wife. Soap opera? Yeah? He convinced Herodias to leave Philip and to marry him. And then he divorced his own wife, which ticked off her dad, who just happened to be a king of a very powerful kingdom, And so dad got mad and went and destroyed Herod Antipas's army and probably would have kept on going had not Rome interceded and said, hey, calm down, back off. And so he backed off after destroying his army and Herod and Herodias continued to take up their relationship. Herodias also wasn't just Philip's wife, just in case you're wondering if it gets any juicier, She was also his half-brother's daughter, the daughter of Aristobulus, which makes her his niece also. And I could keep going on. It's really fascinating, but it's a little salacious and just a little too, it just pulls you in just a little too much, like rotten TV shows like Game of Thrones, which I haven't watched, but this is very much a Game of Thrones thing. Um. So I don't know if you're confused yet. Uh, uh, like if I don't write it down, I get confused over again. So it's a little bit confusing. But remember that by the time that we get to this passage in Matthew 14, John the Baptist is already dead. And when Herod hears about Jesus and the miracles that Jesus has performed, 
he automatically thinks that such miracles must come from outside of this world. He thinks that somehow John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and, and that the only reason these miracles could be performed is because of some other miracle. And so um, it says, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. He said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Can, can you sense a little guilt? And this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Upon hearing about these miracles, he, he just, he can't quite conceive of it. Mark gives us a little bit more information in Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. It said that Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. I mean, it's such an interesting thing is Herod obviously has a conscience, no, though not such a great conscience as to release John. But this passage is interesting because one of the most loving things that we can do is speak truth to others. Now, there actually is one thing that's more loving and also more challenging. The only thing that's more loving and more challenging is to speak truth to others with a right heart and a right attitude. And it's so interesting because I can often do the first one, but I struggle so much to speak truth with a right heart and a right attitude. Sometimes when I speak the truth to others, I'm doing it in anger, maybe even vindictiveness. And so speaking truth to others and to do it out of true love, a right heart, a right attitude. John spoke the truth to Herod. He said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias obviously wasn't a victim here. History tells us that she was very politically astute and ambitious. In fact, she may have willingly left Philip, probably did, because she had ambitions. Herod Antipas crossed Rome. This is later on in history tells us this, but Herod Antipas crossed Rome when he asked at the prodding of Herodias to be given the title of king. She was the one who was most offended by John. Now understand, John was not making a political statement here. This wasn't about politics. He was making a moral statement. Herod claimed to be Jewish. The Herodians were actually Edomites who had married people from the Jewish royal family. And when Rome was ruling Israel, Rome chose Herod the Great to be king. Herod claimed, though, to be Jewish. And so John called him out and said, what you're doing is not lawful. 
Leviticus specifically declared this behavior to be sinful. Leviticus 18, 16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. No kidding. Uh, to, To say the least. And so John speaks truth to Herod, even though Herod has the power to take his life. And remember the first words out of John's mouth in the book of Matthew. They aren't a whole lot different than what John says to Herod. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. How many of you have watched The Chosen? Okay, a few. I, I do recommend it. Is, is The Chosen is this series that has been put together. It was actually crowdfunded. Is, is there were like 90,000 donors that helped with it. And it's interesting um, it, it just does some interesting things. Well, the, the chosen elicited all kinds of controversy because in the chosen, Simon keeps on calling John, creepy John, John the Baptist. And, uh, and there's kind of this like, Ooh, you know, yeah, he's, he's kind of weird. It's, he's creepy John. Um, and so some people were outraged that the chosen, um, that the writers and directors of the chosen would be so disrespectful to John, but think about it. He hung out in the wilderness. He wore camel hair clothing. He ate locusts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He called respectable spiritual leaders of the day a brood of vipers. That's Matthew 3, 7. And he had the habit of crossing powerful, murderous people. His whole message was a message of repentance which isn't necessarily popular. In Matthew 3.11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's a sermon in itself because whenever fire shows up in scripture, it represents the presence of God. And you can think Moses in the burning bush. The presence of God being there in a bush burning without being consumed. It also represents the power of God. And you can think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and fire coming down from heaven and consuming an offering that had been thoroughly wet with water, soaking with water. And so the power of God, and it represents the purity of God. In Malachi 3, 2 and 3, it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. John's whole message, repent. There's one who's more powerful than I who is coming. He will baptize with his spirit and with fire. Jesus called John the greatest prophet. Even though he was a bit odd, the oddity was countercultural today. And I would argue is, is that we must start looking a lot more odd than we do. He was different both in his outward appearance and in his convictions. He called people to repent from sin in every way. Herod obviously found John interesting. He found John's message compelling, maybe even convicting. Mark tells us that he feared John. And if we dig into Herod's fear or fears, He was a man who was constantly bowing to the whims of everyone around him. 
One could argue, though he was the highest leader in the realm of the day, that he was more led than a leader. Matthew 14.5 tells us that he didn't want to harm John because he was afraid of the people. The birthday party was likely full of every indulgence you can imagine. History tells us that these parties were often hours and sometimes days long. I was reading an article this week on the history of these, these parties. And these parties were full of rich foods. I mean, and, and I could tell you some of the, there's actually a recipe book out there, if you like parrot tongue. Um, I mean, they're just strange, rich foods, indulgent foods, rich food and rich drink. That means alcohol. And they were served in such abundance that there was actually a side room for people to go to to vomit so that they could eat and drink more. Part of the indulgent atmosphere was entertainment. The entertainment at this party was some kind of sensuous dance that pleased Herod. So much so that he offered up to half of his kingdom. Now understand, Herod's kingdom wasn't his to give away. He was a vassal of Rome. And so some people have questioned the historical reliability of such a dance occurring and have cast this as legend, including his oath. But Jewish literature, as well as Egyptian and Roman literature, tells us of several such dances. So it's reasonable to believe that this really happened. Even Herod's ridiculous oath isn't outside of reason. It was a common overstatement of the day, almost an idiom to say, I'll grant you anything up to half of my belongings. People didn't take it necessarily literally, but they did take it as an offer to make a request, even a large request. We know the name of Herodias' daughter because Josephus, the historian, later tells us that it was Salome, who herself was later wed to uh, another Herodian family member. Salome was likely in her early to mid-tweens, teens, tweens. I guess we can say tweens, teens. So it wasn't outside of reason for her to ask her mom's advice on what to request. The request, John's head on a platter. Now remember, Herod has protected John out of fear. Mark tells us that it was he who feared John and protected him. Matthew tells us that he feared the people. When Salome requested John's head, we're told that he was distressed, but because he feared what his guests thought, he granted the request. Man, there's fear, there's fear, there's fear. This is a man full of fear. His decisions were guided by fear, not, um, not made or made out of fear. He was led by the whims of the people, by the whims of the women in his life, by the whims of, of um, his own guests, and ultimately by the fear of of all and everything. Interestingly, if you fear mankind, you will be on a roller coaster of emotion. The only way to not be led by fear, the fear of circumstances, the fear of what others think, the only thing that will help you to not be led by fear is actually to fear God. If you fear God, 
there will be no fear of everything else. The fear of God frees you from every kind of fear. Jesus said as much to his disciples, he said, don't fear those who can take your life. Fear the God who can judge your soul. This story is the story of, of two men who have fear. One who fears everyone and everything and one who fears God. And therefore, unapologetically and unabashedly could say, it is not lawful for you. Repent. The nativity of John the Baptist is celebrated by Anglicans on June 24th. There's a prayer that's prayed that was written um, by uh, Thomas Cranmer. It begins with a short summary of John the Baptist's life. Almighty God, by whose providence thy servant, John the Baptist, was wonderfully born and sent to prepare the way of thy son and our Savior by preaching repentance. And then the prayer switches from God's work in John's life to a petition for God's work in our own lives. It says, make us so follow his doctrine and holy life that we may truly repent according to his preaching. And after his example, constantly speak the truth, boldly rebuking vice and patiently suffering for truth's sake. Boy, if there was a prayer that's needed today. It's almost as though Cran- Cranmer had his Bible open to Matthew 14, 1 through 12, when he wrote this prayer. The prayer reminds us to, unlike Herod, we are to repent according to John's preaching in, in Matthew chapter 3. And then Jesus took up the same message, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Following John's example, we are exhorted to constantly speak the truth, which includes boldly rebuking vice. And that actually includes our own lives, to rebuke the vice in our own lives. Finally, following John's example, we are called to patiently suffer for the truth's sake. Again, remember the first words of John. In Matthew, or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next time Matthew mentions John, he is in prison. In Matthew 11, verse 2. And in this passage, we're reminded again that he is in prison because John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife as your own. In other words, Herod, repent of the sin of marrying your brother's wife while your brother and your lawful wife are still alive. Sever this immoral, unlawful, polygamous relationship. Instead, John's head was severed from his body. Interestingly, Herod died and has no kingdom. And John's message continues which is really the message of Jesus. Repent. 
John's message is an important part of the message of the gospel and therefore the message of the church. The Reformation began with the same message. Remember Luther's 95 Theses? The very first one says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, Repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. This is our call to worship. Not only in our own personal lives, but in the church. We should pray. And I got this prayer from Douglas Sean O'Dell. Jesus, help me to abide in you. That's where the sin-breaking power of grace comes from. And to rejoice in you. Help me to be grateful for all that you have given and continue to give. Life, breath, and salvation. For gratitude can squelch the surge of sin. It can flatten the fires of our flesh. Help me to come to you daily in dependence like a little child clinging to his father's strong, tall leg. Here I am, Lord. Cleanse me, save me, sanctify me, and send me. I repent. I repent again. My whole earthly life is a life of perpetual repentance. You know, John the Baptist could have resisted rocking the boat, so to speak. And yet, Herod claimed to be a faithful Jew. He claimed to have the right to lead the Jews because of being a Jew. In much the same way, there's people who claim to be Christian and yet live pagan lives. Herod claimed to be a believer and lived a double life of immorality. So John called him out. Because John was faithful to his Lord and faithful to his calling, he spoke truth to Herod. This is very convicting though, is is because it's so easy to call yourself a Christian. A, A large percentage of America calls themselves Christians. And yet if what they say is true, there's not a lot of difference between the lives of Christians and those who are now calling themselves nuns. There's the same level of sexual immorality. There's the same level of deceit and, and, and all of the other things. The same level of divorce and, and all of these other things. And I know it's a complicated world. I know it's, it's challenging, but, but it's this call to, to not call yourself a believer, but to live, to live in Christ and abide in Christ and to do what God would have us do. So bringing this home. First, we are truly to repent of our unrighteousness. And then second, we are to boldly stand against the unrighteousness of the world around us. And that's not easy. Watchman Nee wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. But we could be very confused about what that means or what that looks like because the normal Christian life is actually a call to be different. And in a lot of ways, especially in the world that we live in right now, it'll be a call to suffering for being countercultural. I mentioned Thomas Cramner. He was a key person in the Protestant Reformation. He served as the Archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of Mary. Um, she's more 
affectionately or not affectionately known as Bloody Mary in history. And when she came to power, she ordered all of the Protestant bishops to recant or be put to death. At first, Cramner resisted, but after being forced to watch his friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, be burned at the stake, Cramner signed a recantation. In doing so, he renounced his faith. On the eve of having to recite the recantation, he said that his courage returned to him. And instead of repeating his recantation, he said, Here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for the fear of death and to save my life, and for as much as my hand offendeth, writing contrary to my heart, and therefore my hand shall be the first to be punished when I come to the fire to be burned at the stake. It shall be the first to be burned and tied to a post. As the fire was burning, he stuck his right hand into the fire to burn first and gave his life out of his love for Christ. In so many ways, in so many ways, that call to repentance is so much more relevant than we can ever imagine. But also that call to put fear in its right place. We can fear circumstances, we can fear the people around us, we can fear authorities, or we can fear God. And we have to remember that we have a Savior who went to the cross and died for every one of us so that we do not have to fear. And particularly, we don't have to fear death. And we definitely don't have to fear sin, our own sin or the sin of others. Because that sin was paid for on the cross. And we are called to give our lives to our Savior and to follow him. That he is the very definition of truth. And it's his truth that has been preserved for us in Scripture, which we are to follow. Let's pray. You know, I, I very much take this as, as a call to personal repentance first and foremost. Is that there's just so much stuff in our lives. And no longer how long I've been following Christ, I am still surprised that sin rears its head in my life. And that call to repent, not just to say I'm sorry, but to turn away from sin. But then it's also a call to proclaim the message of repentance. That there's a Savior that has died for our sins and that when we repent, 
and cast ourselves upon his grace and his mercy that it is granted and those sins are forgiven and that that is good news for both us and for the world. What might there be in your life that you need to give over to the Lord? What dishonors him, displeases him? What would it just take to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. I embrace the message of repentance. I pursue it. And I'll proclaim it to myself and to others. Father and Lord God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.